All right. Welcome to the Sweet Science of Fighting podcast. Today, we have Dr. Greg Huff. Welcome, Greg. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. No, thanks for coming on. Our, our wives are, are good friends through, uh, through weightlifting. It's a small world. Yes, and then uh, one, of, one of the coaches in, the, in my community membership, he's doing his PhD as well, and he asked for your autograph. So that just shows <laughs> how prolific you are in, in this space. <laughs> oh, I'm sure we can help him out with that. <laughs> yeah, maybe next time you're in Canada, we'll link you guys up. But, but do you want to maybe give a brief background about yourself, Greg, and we'll go straight into it. Uh, briefly, I'm the a professor of strength and conditioning at Edith Cowan University. Um, my sporting background was primarily gymnastics, American football, and weightlifting and athletics. Um, I did my undergrad degree in physical education with an emphasis in exercise and sports science um, at East Strasburg University, which was a really unique experience for me. Um, stumbled into Appalachian State University and was coached by Professor Mike Stone as a weightlifter and was kind of in his lab for three years and spent a, a good amount of time working with him. Um, we've been working together for over 25 years, and, and so he's been a pretty big influence on my career. Um, and I did my PhD at the University of Kansas. Uh, you know, that was an interesting experience, uh, trying to juggle training as a weightlifter full-time and doing a PhD, which is a little bit harder in the U.S., <laughs> Um, but fundamentally, the whole journey has always been about trying to figure out um, how to be stronger um, and how to transition what I do in the weight room into either some sort of sporting performance. Uh, in university, I was an athletics athlete, so how do I lift to, to, to run faster, jump higher, throw farther? Um, fundamentally for me, um, that journey has been kind of a ongoing journey. I've taken a pretty atypical path for, for professors. I don't really get bogged down chasing grants and things like that. I'm really interested in answering questions that have relevance for coaches. So often have, have problems with administrators who, who are quite <laughs> frustrated that I'm not pulling in large grants. Uh, but a lot of the questions I want to answer, granting agencies don't want to fund. So um, right now what we're doing, we're, we're really looking at different ways to optimize performance and individualized training in, in ways that leverage things like artificial intelligence and machine learning and things of that nature, um, trying to use technology in a more effective way, but also being true to the fact that training isn't, um, it's not all numbers and, and math. It's, it's, it's got an art form to it as well. And there's people out there that are just quite gifted at, at getting people strong and, and, and based on experience. My wife probably is one of those people that I would, I'd put in that category. So really, we, we spend all our time just trying to figure out how the body works and how to make it work better. Now, that's awesome. That, that sounds like an interesting project, too. When you're talking AI and machine learning, we're going past like... We're talking past the typical velocity-based training apps kind of thing and prescribing maybe loads based on what's happening there, or are we talking something completely different? Uh, that's part of the question. Um, and the, the problem that we have right now is that we can't find any velocity devices that are reliable enough to actually do what we want to do or accurate mm. enough. Um, what we find is that from a velocity measurement perspective, the construct that force and velocity are intimately related is a fascinating one because it makes so much sense. You know, we know that in the weight room, if you lift a heavy thing, it's going to move slower. Mm -hmm. The question that we have to ask then is, you know, how accurate are those 
metrics for prescribing training load. And, and right now you have a two camps, really. You have one camp that's like, let's just ditch everything we know about strength training and just, just go full on in with velocity. And then you have the other camp that's like, whoa, slow down. This is this is too much, too fast. And, and the reality, this is not a new question. This question's been around since the 70s when the Russians first started using linear position transducers in weightlifting. And they found that, you know, when you did that, you didn't get as strong as you did when you went off of percentages. And then mm. the Americans tried it in the late 1970s and then found this uh, with Carl Miller and found <laughs> basically the same thing. The Germans tried it in the 90s with the V-scope and found the same thing. We tried it in <laughs> Professor Stone's lab in the early 90s, found the same thing. And it's just kind of this rehashing of the same problem. The reality is that velocity will change before strength changes. And, and the people that promote velocity-based training are really saying that strength is this wildly changing construct that, you know, from day to day, it's going to vary really dramatically. We have a series of papers right now that we're in the process of completing. We have one that's already published that looks at the 1RM on a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and it's pretty bang on around five kilos error rate, which is natural variance. So a lot of people questioned us on that and said, why, why just a 1RM, that's not that big a deal. There's not a lot of volume. So we decided to go, and that was in the back squat. And we said, all right, fine. So we, we've got a series of studies with my PhD student, Stuart Guppy, who um, is looking at the 3RM deadlift, which we know people don't like to deadlift to max every, you know, multiple times a week. And we did that three days, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and bang on, doesn't change much, less than 5%, <laughs> maybe 6%. Um, same thing, we said, all right, 3RM, okay, fine. So we went to 6RM, bang, same thing, about 5%, 6%. And it falls right in line with what Professor Stone started teaching in the 1970s, early 80s, that light, heavy days earlier in the week, you can go heavier, drop five, five to 10% for the end of the week, you'll account for fatigue. So the reality is strength's not that variable, um, but velocity is all over the shop. Um, so when you start mm. to use velocity metrics to pre predict load, it becomes problematic because are you actually getting a, a load that's actually related to the actual athlete's capacity? Now, if you, you go out to the Google Earth view, so to speak, and you think about it in the context of overtraining and you look at the seminal work of Professor Andy Fry from the 90s, what you see is that overtraining, in the progression of our overtraining, that strength is the last factor to actually fall off. Uh, rate of force development is first. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, psychological variables are first. You start to feel like crap. Uh, and then you start to see changes in rate of force development, which then show you changes in movement velocity. So we would expect movement velocity to move earlier than strength, but everybody seems to disregard that. In fact, we did a study in the early 2000s where we looked at sleep deprivation in weightlifters, and we found that even 48 hours of sleep, people could still hit their maximums. They felt horrible doing it, but they could actually do it. So for us, what we've been trying to do is figure out what's the best way to use velocity measurement devices because we need inputs to create our AI models for, for training. So we've been doing a lot of validation work on different devices. We've been working with different companies. We've been looking at how does this change in relation to strength because we need inputs. If we don't have inputs, we can't create the actual programmatic structures that we want and have machine learning and AI kind of work from there. Obviously, we can easily measure psychological factors. We can measure sleep. We can measure heart rate variability. We can measure, you know, resting heart rate. There's tons of devices that do that quite accurately. 
But to be honest, in the weight room, there isn't much that actually works on a reliable <laughs> and really accurate way. Um, mm. Most of the validation studies for a lot of the devices that are used by proponents of velocity-based training are done in the Smith machine. They're done with a pause between the eccentric and concentric phase. Um, in their papers, they actually state they do that to improve the reliability. Well, <laughs> not many people, A, train in a Smith machine, and B, pause between the eccentric and concentric phase of a lift on a regular basis. Now, in competition, a power lifter will do that, a bench press. But fundamentally, um, if you are a proponent of ground-based weightlifting training, which most of us are, um, that's not how you train with the weightlifting motions. You, you're always mm. moving as fast as possible. So from there, I think that's where we're, we're, we're spending a lot of time at the moment. Um, and, and the reason we do that is because we think it has defense applications. Um, because with, we look at, for example, soldiers, special forces operators, um, they have very variable schedules with training that has multitude of factors from high intensity interval training to long distance cardiovascular to high power output to high force. And how do you get all that to work together to optimize that individual um, and keep them optimized on, on a regular basis? So it's kind of a package we're trying to unpack. Mm. We started looking at some of these factors with Duncan French at UFC. Yeah. Um, and we spent a fair bit of time. Uh, there prior to COVID, which was, was really kind of fun, uh, whiteboarding and trying to figure out the idea of emphasis periodization and, and, and how that would relate to, to MMA, but also to defense applications. And so for us, that's kind of where we're at right now is to try to figure out how to use technology to, to vary training within an emphasis model for sports that require um, a multitude of uh, physiological factors to be at a high level. Because it's easy to do weightlifting. I mean, like weightlifting coaching is pretty simple. I mean, I know my wife and purest weightlifting coaches might question that, but it's pretty easy. Um, master techniques get as strong as humanly possible, and, <laughs> and just, it, it's pretty easy. Just takes time and and, and developing work capacity. When you start to put in multiple factors, um, it gets a little bit more tricky. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's funny how you mentioned the. Uh... I guess the ebb and flow of velocity-based training coming and going, you see it now again within weightlifting, within the training halls, <clears throat> a lot of uh, people using various devices, VMAX pros, gym awares, whatever, uh, I guess maybe to track their training through there. But what what is needed for these devices to become more accurate? So linear position transducers, they measure displacement. So they're probably the yeah. most accurate, but they're also the most expensive. And mm. the, the question that you have to have is, is, is what are you going to use them for? And, and are you using them for motivation? Or are you using them for programming? And from a motivation perspective, um, yeah, you can set target velocities. But in, in weightlifting, what we find is that people change their technique to get a higher velocity and they become less mm. efficient. I could put a really efficient weightlifter on a velocity meter and they're not going to look as good as a really inefficient person. Mm. Um as far as movement velocity goes, we, we saw several yeah. teams in Australia that tried to use velocity meters and their technique went sideways. Um, so for me, when I start to look at how, how we, we use them, um, we think that they may have application in season when we're trying to balance fatigue. Because remember, if we look at our overtraining spectrum, velocity is going to be one of the early things to go. Um, and so what we suggest is that we use guard, what we call velocity-based training with guardrails. So thinking of it in this capacity, 
set our training loads in traditional ways based on percentages, you know, percentage ranges. I'm a big fan of Mike Stone's system where we, we set 5% ranges and let the athlete auto-regulate within that range. Mm. Um, set your ranges there and then use the velocity meter to kind of either raise or lower the intensity, you know, for a band of velocity that fits in that range. Um, I'm not a proponent of this idea that we're just going to do as many reps as we can until we get a certain velocity loss. Um, there's a recent paper that came out out of Spain that suggests that we should not ever use percentages um, and that velocity just program velocity percent losses. So let's say I'm going to have a 20% loss in velocity. and um, They said from rep one, but the literature would say from rep two. Um, and do as many reps as you can until you get to 20%. And as a lifter, I'm like, that makes no sense because I know the more reps I do, the more fatiguing it gets. And, and um, so for me, set the rep range, make it static, adjustable, mm. go to your intensity based on what you've programmed with your percentages and then use velocity maybe in season. That, that's where I think we might have application um, or as a motivation tool where we have, for example, you know, our rugby players come in and we want them to do a bench throw and like make a contest on who can get the highest velocity or the highest power yeah. output. From there, I think that would work, but I'm not ready to make the leap into full-on, let's program everything off velocity. I think the, the data is too variable, and it's it's innate problems with the devices. Um, like, for example, IMUs and accelerometers are really rubbish at determining the beginning and the end of a lift. This mm -hmm. is why... I found that. Look, it, yeah, if you look at the research, to make it reliable, they artificially put in constraints of pauses at the beginning, and the, uh, beginning of the rep and at the middle of the rep and at the end of the rep. People just don't train that way. That's not, not how we maximize strength. So that's been the issue. And, and I think I'm not sure you're going to ever get that out. Now, they're trying to use artificial intelligence and machine learning to try to smooth out some of that error, but I just don't think it's going to work. Um, now, the linear position transducer has been around for a long, long, long time. I just think that we know people who have been strong or are strong know that you just kind of got to grind sometimes. And, and you know... And you can't overcome will to do something. And, you know, if you look at, for example, special forces operators, they, they do things that no human would want to do. Um, but they do it and do it well. And they do things in the, in the gym, in the weight room that you just kind of scratch your head going, how did they just do that? You know, um, I mean, we've had, we have studies that we've, we've done where, you know, people are doing, you know, 90 kilo squats for sets of 80. I mean, that's insane, you know. Um, and so when we start to look at this, um, I'm not sure you can get it to work. And it, in, Professor Stone and I have talked about this a lot. In the 90s, the big rage was the optimal load uh, training. So you've got to find mm. your optimal power output and you're going to train at it. And people tried it. And yeah, it works for a little while, but then you tend to lose strength and then power goes down. So I think if you're always optimizing on velocity or power, because really what is power training? It's velocity training. It's just packaged in a different way. If you know that force mm. times velocity equals power, you turn out power. <laughs> it's velocity training. And so it, I think with some exercises, yeah, it's necessary uh, to train power, so to speak. But I'm not sure we can ever get the devices to work. Uh, I'm not. I mean, because... Think about it. If you had to have a linear position transducer for every single device, that every exercise that you want to perform, mm. that's somewhat problematic. The other issue that you run into is that 
you've got to create a load velocity profile for every individual and every exercise you want to use it with. If I'm a oh, yes, like American that. strength coach who works in <laughs> football and I've got a hundred football players, uh, that's a hundred people I got to test and I'm probably going to have a hundred exercises. All I'll be doing <laughs> for the rest of my life is testing. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's been some work by Jonathan Weekly and his colleagues and, 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 and my former doctoral student, Harry Banyard, who have suggested that, you know, one RM testing is time consuming and da 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 da. Yet they propose to do velocity based profiling by doing a test for one RM and then coming back three days later and doing another one RM test. Well, why don't I just do <laughs> one RM? Um, again, the practicality of all this is, is difficult. I, I think there's a rush to put technology into training, and I think it's good. I mean, I think we need to have data, but I'm not sure how we use it at the moment is the best way to go. That's an interesting, interesting <clears throat> takes there. And I kind of want to dive into as well the idea of programming of 1RM. Yeah. Because obviously, as you mentioned, there's a shift. People program for 1RM, people program velocity, people not using anything, it's using RPE. I yeah. guess, as you mentioned, obviously, within the week, that you might take 5% near the end of the week to, yeah. I guess, account for fatigue. So how do yep. you go about programming then typically? Is it just kind of that one RM later in the week, you take around 5% 5, 5 off or give a range? And then do you ever use RPE within that as well? Okay, so that's a, this is a good one to unpack. Uh, mm. So programming-wise, you know, the classic weightlifting way is to, you know, you got your snatch and your clean and jerk and your squat, one RM, yeah. you know it, then you program it. And, you know, you, you, you look at, the repetition to intensity basically relationship and obviously you know the heavier the load the less reps you can do so that's the way a lot of people do it the way i'm probably more inclined to do it is what we would say off the xrm <laughs> so this is the classic way that professor stone really came up with in the in the early 80s um, at the nsca research center at auburn and at lsu and you know wildly successful programming style. So what you do is you create bands. So it's like, let's say we're going to have a moderate day and that's 80 to 85% of RM. So if I'm mm -hmm. working on singles, then it's 80 to 85% of a one RM. If I'm working on doubles, it's 80 to 85% of a two RM and, and use a basically mm. a sliding prediction. Um, and then we do that regardless of the rep range. So it creates a band of intensity and then we can vary that band of intensity. So let's say I have a moderate, a moderately light day. Um, so that would be what six to 70, 75% of, of the RM. Let's say the first day of the week is moderate. Let's say Monday is our squatting day and we're going to have a moderate day. So we'll train that Thursday would be a moderately light day. So we've got that built in change. So we create that light heavy conundrum. And if you think about it, it really fits nicely with some of the work of Verkashansky with the idea of polar training where you have high intensity days and low intensity days. And, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, Louis Simmons made that quite famous with, with some of the things that he, he mm. did in powerlifting. But it's it's basically the same construct. We're just using um, off of the RMs. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to always test the one RM. You could fold in an RM into the training program. So let's say I'm doing sets of five in the back squat. Well, I could make it a max day and just go to RM. <laughs> Fail. Yeah. And then I can recalibrate all my other training loads with predictions. Now, people are like, well, but the predictions and people can do different repetition ranges and things like that. Mm. I think as a coach, you start to figure that out. You can actually kind of say, all right, my athlete doesn't always hit the same targets, so we can adjust the load. Yeah. Because again, 
I'm a firm believer that while there is some mathematics to, to training and, and training theory, it's also about coaching and, and understanding your athletes. You know, I, I use the analogy and this will tie in with the RPE. We've got two types of athletes. We've got what I would call a marshmallow and a brick. <laughs> so the marshmallow is all soft and smushy and is going to quit on everything and everything is really difficult and I'm never going to push themselves. I've got to kind of hit them with the stick to get them to go. And then I've got the brick is that individual that no matter what I give them, they're going as hard as they can and they're going to push themselves too far and I'm going to be constantly pulling them back. And so when I start to look at this construct, when I have those type of people, I've got to understand who they are and know that, you know, how they move and how they lift the weight and how they operate. And then I can start to figure out, okay, they can lift at a higher percentage of, of, of their, their maximum for more reps. And it also has to do a little bit with their physiology. Um, I had a track cyclist that I worked with from Canada, and he could do almost 90% of his 1RM in the back squat for 10s. <laughs> he had very low-end 1RM. But the problem for him wasn't his legs. It was his core. His core couldn't handle the loading mm -hmm. for heavy singles. Um, and so that was something we had to adapt. You know, Obviously, he would be somewhat underloaded with high volume if he has such a high 10RM, but we could actually you know, adjust it. And, you know, Christian Thibodeau out of Canada has a, has a wonderful team mm. where he's got, you know, people who are high fast twitch percentages for 1RM, low fast twitch, you know, high slow twitch, and then kind of a mixed. And so we have the same thing, a similar table within in our new book that's coming out next year. Um, but how does this relate to RPE? Well, when we start to train on RPE, you know, one person's pain is another person's pleasure. And um, some people push really hard and, and will rate it low. I remember when my wife worked at the West Coast Fever with Norma Palmer. I mean, there was one netball player there. It, it, I swear if she had a baby fall out of her, she'd rate it a two. Um, and she, nothing was ever above a two when we would do the monitoring um, and, and help Aaron with that. And so if she jumped to a three, my wife was in panic mode. Like, what, what's going on? What's wrong with her? You know, um, but then there was other people that come out of the change room and they're rating it a nine, just walking out of it, you know, life yeah. is a nine. So for me, RPE is a tool, but I think I've got to contextualize it to the individual and understand their peculiarities in the sense that um, I know when I work with military people, um, they're on that brick side. And I mean, pulling them back is difficult because there's an ethos there that that if they don't do it, then they're letting their teammates down. And, and so, and also the type of people that attract to that. So I've got to understand that. So do I use RP? Yeah, I use it as a monitoring tool. And I, I may use it with loading in some situations, but I've got to ground it. Uh, my wife kind of did, you know, she was trying to figure a way to make it work. And um, what she did was like on an 80% day, she'd say, all right, this is an eight. Okay. Feel what that feels like and kind of give it kind of a, a feeling. Mm. Um, because what we know with RPE, it's very subjective. Yeah. And in the original Borg scale, the six to 20 scale was based on heart rate. So you would basically take someone on a treadmill and say, all right, you're going to a 12. So you'd take them up till their heart rate was 120 and you'd kind of ground it there. Um, and so you could kind of use that as a guide in the weight room. It's a little bit different. No one's really that I know of has, has come up with a way to ground it. Now I know the group out of uh, Pittsburgh Robinson, um, I had done a lot of work on this, but most of it's in untrained people and it's, it's, it's not people at the pointy end of the spear of strength development. And so 
that's a problem. Now, the other issue that I think is 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 really kind of interesting at the moment is repetitions repetitions in reserve is mm. the kind of a hot thing. And and for me, I I'm 53 years old now. I've been lifting weights since I was 11 on a regular basis. I can't tell you how many reps I have left in the tank until I'm done. Um <laughs> and I've been in the weight room probably more hours and days than some people have been alive. And so I've talked with Professor Stone about this. We don't even conceptualize how you can actually design a study that isn't confounded with that in the sense that and we've been trying for the last five years to kind of come up with an idea and we, we're just stuck. Um, maybe with COVID gone, we might have an opportunity to get in a room and figure it out, but we haven't been able to do it virtually. So if you look at repetitions in reserve, the idea is you're going to lift until you have X amount of reps left in the tank, and that's going to be your intensity. And, and it was made famous out of powerlifting and, and, and rather simple movements. Well, in the weightlifting movements, you can just toss it because who knows? You yeah. Because <laughs> technique will break. And, and oftentimes with weightlifting, it's not the strength that's the problem. It's the technique breaks and, and as far as the full lifts go, unless you're dealing with really highly developed athletes, then it becomes a strength issue. Strength is the underpinning factor. Mm -hmm. um, when I think about it from a repetitions and reserve perspective to create a study to actually test it. So you've got one of two things. You've got to ask them before they do the set, how many reps they think they can complete. Mm -hmm. And then they go do it. The issue there becomes now they've psychologically predisposed yeah. themselves or, or, or biased the study. If you ask them in the middle of the set, then you distract them from actually performing and they're thinking about something other than performing. If you pause in the middle of the set to measure it, then you're creating a cluster <laughs> set, which then changes the whole conundrum. So I'm actually struggling with how you could actually do a repetitions in reserve. We tried to do something with Armador Garcia Ramos with velocity and could we use velocity to declines to predict how many reps you had left and not nope, didn't work too much variability. So, for me, when you start to look at psychology, uh, resilience is an interesting uh, uh, phenomenon. And um, in the weight room, I'm a firm believer uh, that strength training builds resilience when it's done appropriately because you have to learn how to fight. And when you have people that are really resilient, and I use special forces operators because I think they're really quite on that really extreme spectrum. They have a, a way to do things that and push through that a lot of people don't have. Um, and, and, and your super elite athletes often have this as well. Um, but when you look at novices, they don't, they don't know what hard is or they don't know mm. where their limits are. And um, in talking to people that go through extreme sporting events, um, they don't know what their limit, how far they can push themselves until they actually push themselves. I think David yeah. Goggins is a great example of someone who tries to find where his limits are. I mean, he's a little extreme, but that just is a little. very, just a little, but to be honest, I've, I've worked with a lot of special forces operators that are in that same spectrum mm. and it's not an uncommon. He's just a little bit different, but his resiliency is a lot different than other people. So for me, that that's like the psychological factors. Do I measure him as a strength coach? Absolutely. Because it's, it gives me evidence that I can use to create a model of my athlete and couple it with what I know about my athlete. Um, so for me, that's kind of how I would use it. Um, and obviously we use it to calculate training load, you know, you know arbitrary load. And yeah. um, the biggest thing that I know of no studies, and we've wanted to do it for a very long time, and, and we tried, but one of the grad students messed it up, was <laughs> um, does volume load, monotony and strain correspond to arbitrary load from session RP, monotony mm -hmm. and strain? 
we, we've never been able to, we've never measured it. Um, we're assuming that the mechanical, you know, obviously external load influences internal load, external load being the volume load of the lifting, internal load being the RPE based training load. Um, we, we assume that those are, are the same, but are they the same? I don't know. Um, and, and I think that's a study that needs to be done down the line. Um, we did do a study um, in rugby that we haven't published because we don't have the statistical power where we compared training on RPE versus percentage-based training. Mm-hmm. And what we found was that your personality type related to it. Mm-hmm. So the, your personality constructs dictated how effective either training strategy was. Um, and what we did find generally is people with session RPE, they're either overtrained or undertrained. Um, and the percentage-based people, we could control the, the inputs a little bit better. So from that perspective, I mean, w- that was in rugby players. Um, and we found that was an interesting thing. We, we just don't have the power to say confidently that, that the findings are, are what they are. We, we intend to redo the study. It's just um, since COVID, it's, it's more difficult to do training yeah. studies. People aren't really interested in participating in things <laughs> anymore. You'd be surprised. We pay people and they still don't want to do stuff. Wow. Um, so from, from my perspective, yeah, that's how I use RPE. Nice. I like that. And while we're on the topic of weightlifting as well, weightlifting derivatives, I know you're, yeah. you're deep in that world too. So I wanted to maybe just talk to you or have you kind of explain to the audience why use derivatives over the traditional Olympic lifts, uh, let's say from a sporting context. And are there any advantages yeah. or disadvantages of doing so? This is a great question. The first thing I, I, I often give uh, Dr. Tim Suchamil a hard time because we were using derivatives when he was still in nappies. Um, so <laughs> he's not the founder of this. Professor Stone was doing this. You know, the, you can look back in strength and health in, in, in York Barbell was doing derivatives back in the 50s. So it's not a new conundrum. Um, derivatives are a great tool. Now, the way I've always looked at it is that derivatives give me the ability to overload the lift. And for example, pulling, you know, in the clean, the limiter is usually the catch and and standing. The pull is usually not always the problem. So to overload the pull, I can pull more than I can clean. So I can use that to create strength and we get our triple extension. And that triple extension has translation to, to sporting performance. The issue that you have is that I don't think it's a one or the other equation. I think it's a blending of the two. I think you need to catch as well. Um, and we have this wonderful study that's under review at the moment that I worked with the Russian, not Russian, the German, <laughs> uh, German university and the German national weightlifting team to do a study. And we figured out a way to actually use EMG to look at how the core muscles uh, <clears throat> contract when you catch for bracing. And we compared derivatives to catching. And what we're finding is that there is a, a unique activation pattern of the core muscles to stabilize the spine on reception that is very mm. different than if you are doing derivatives. So when I look at derivatives, I think of them as tools for developing aspects of the lifts. And for non-weightlifters, they're very useful. Um, in fact, when I was a lifter, we spent majority of our time in Professor Stone's group doing derivatives and a minimal amount of time on the full lifts. Now, I think we were a little bit too extreme in that regard because timing of your lifts will go off if you don't do enough of them. But actually, I think many people in weightlifting probably do too many of the full lifts. 
and not enough of the pulling and, and the pressing and the squatting mm-hmm. movements. Because really, that's the engine builder. I think my wife actually explained it one day to me in a way that I, made me think a lot. She said, the snatch and the clean and jerk are the technique work. It's your sport. The derivatives, the pulling, the squatting, and the pressing is your strength training for your sport. Mm. And I think that's a good way of looking at it. Um, so for non-weightlifters, yeah, if you have somebody who technically can't perform a clean, let's say um, you've got a rugby player who's got a risk prob- wrist problem where they just can, can't get into the catch position. Well, the derivatives is a fine alternative. You're going to get a lot of the benefit of the triple extension. Um, in fact, as a weightlifter, I would argue that all weightlifters should be doing those exercises. And, and I know a few that don't. Um, so from that perspective, I think it gives you more tools in your toolbox so that you can actually kind of plug and play things so that you can um, target training adaptations. It's not so much always the exercise, it's the adaptation that you're trying to get. So we use those a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, think about mm-hmm. it. There's some wonderful work from um, uh, Dan Cleaver and others that shows that the push press corresponds or translates or has dynamic correspondence with vertical jumping. So, you know, if I'm working with AFL players, Australian rules football players, you know, push press is a great exercise for them. So things like that. I think it's trying to find, uh, you know, what exercise is going to fit with what you're trying to get. So, to sum it up, derivatives, great tool. Use them. Um, they should be programmed heavier probably than the full lifts if you do them well. Um, but you don't want to sacrifice technique just to lift load. Mm. I think that's where some people make big mistakes. You know, for example, on a clean pull, you're probably – this is where Professor Stone and I kind of get into some really hot <laughs> debate, to be honest. Um, I don't think you really would pull more than 120% of your clean. Mm-hmm. If, if, you, if you're capable of pulling more than 120% of your clean, then your clean technique is, is inefficient yeah. and you've got bigger issues. Um, and so from a weightlifting perspective, that's how I kind of look at it. Now, the big issue that we have right now is that, and, and I've actually asked Paul Comfort this, who's my very, very good friend and, and one of my most cherished colleagues, um, and, and, and Tim Suchamel this as well. If you don't, if you can't catch, how do you program it? Because all the programming is based off of your full lift. If you can't catch, how do you program it? And there isn't a good answer to this. This may be where velocity is, where we can get something, you know, set a velocity band and make it work. (laughs) Um, There's a group that's proposed using body weight, which I think is probably the dumbest idea I've ever heard. (laughs) Because that totally forgets the idea that people have... Um, different strength to weight ratios. Yeah. So just programming derivatives off of a percentage of your body weight makes zero sense to me. Um, so, you know, that's an issue that with the derivatives, if you don't have mastery of the actual catching, how do you program it? And right now, the only way I can think of is with velocity. And and that may be where velocity meters have a use, but we have to be cognizant of the fact that they are variable and are inaccurate at times. No, I know. I know. Mona falls into the same camp as you regarding the percentages for for pulls and things yeah. above above the clean. I know she, for her preparations and things, she didn't pull. She doesn't pull. I have to double check with her, but I know she doesn't pull that much heavier above her clean snatch uh, when she's preparing. Yeah, if for you look at the Russian literature, they did. They suggest ninety to one ten percent is what you would train off of, mm. um, because that has the best transference, and, and we track that way back and. and I got it. There's a position stance on weightlifting coming from the NSCA that we were all co-authors on. And, um, you know, Professor Stone may go as high as 140%, but 
um, where I would go that high would be when I'm pulling from blocks at the knee or the thigh, which is, you know, obviously you've taken out some of the sticking points. Um, but fundamentally, I think if you go that heavy that often, you become too much on that slow strength area, um, yeah. which that high force zone of the force velocity relationship, which is important. Don't get me wrong. I'm not discounting that. But to get the transition to the actual full lifts, I think you got to be somewhere in that 90 to 110% is where it's going to be. Um, you might push it as high as 115 or 120 if your athlete is quite quite proficient. But um, <clears throat> that's based. I, that's pretty well documented. Now, there is a neat paper by Urs Graniker that talks about heavier pulls at the first pull just to get the lift off more effective. And he's gone as high as 130. But that's... That's a very finite kind of, mm. it's almost the question that I always ask, and, and, and this is part of the debate that professor stone and I had was, you know, when is a pull end and a deadlift begin? You, you know, cause really <laughs> if you take it heavy enough, it becomes a clean deadlift. It's no longer a clean pull. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. so when is that going to happen? You know, what speed does that happen at? And I don't know if we have a good feel for that. And so, mm. And what are you using the pull for? Is it simply to develop strength or is it to develop speed strength or strength speed? You know, all those yeah. things. You've got to make those decisions. So how then would you, I know you mentioned, obviously you need to know, to go off percentages, you need to know your clean or snatch. But yeah. is there a way for, for example, an MMA fighter listening to this where they wanted to use some kind of Olympic weightlifting derivative that they would be able to figure out the loading? Or would you, or would you be like, okay, you need to kind of look at velocity or, or at least something to go off? If, if they've got no catch, then I'd probably use velocity as some sort of barometer um, just to get an idea. Um, I think he might be able to predict it off of a squat or a clean. I mean, a squat or a front squat, but it's going to be a rough. Because we know we have relation. You know, we could back mathematically calculate it. We know there's relationships between the squat and the front squat and the snatch and the clean. So mm -hmm. you could say, all right, roughly your squat is like 120% you're clean. So if you squat mm. 120 kilos, then your best clean is a hundred figure yeah. from there. And that might get you in the ballpark. Um, and, and again, I don't think you have to be spot on to get benefit. I think if you're in the ballpark, you're going to figure it out. Um, it, it's not a one for one kind of relationship where it has to be perfect. I think <laughs> the body's going to adapt to the stimulus. Um, and we'll figure it out eventually. And I think velocity actually could be used there. I, I don't know if anybody's done it with a research study. So it's, it's kind of out there. It's, it's, it's just ideas that we're playing with in our lab group at the moment. Gotcha. And you also mentioned cluster sets earlier. I'm a fan, yeah. of, a fan of cluster sets. I know you've done, you've, I think you've probably done the best uh, review or analysis on or published the best one on cluster sets. I think you've got another one coming out. You had one come out recently. Uh, yeah, we just uh, my my doctoral student Yoshi Nagatani just came out with. Uh, he's got two. He's got one in SCJ Strength and Conditioning Journal mm -hmm. from the NSCA, but I actually think the better one's actually in the UK SCA Journal, the, the in the Professional Strength and Conditioning Journal. Um, I, I actually like the second one better. Um, yeah, we've been playing with cluster sets for a long time. I'm in, I, I remember when I was lifting in the '90s, Professor Stone used to do them with me quite frequently, and. Um, a lot of the stuff that we, we research is stuff we've done in training or tried in training that we, we've we've gotten from different sources around the world. Cluster sets are really fascinating. It's not a new construct at all. Um, we've tracked it back to 1924. 
Um, oh. And it's <laughs> it's been around for some time. Um, I've been working with Jan Todd at um, mm -hmm. the Stark Center. We're trying yeah. to find um, the origins of certain kind of things. Um, I was supposed to go to um, uh, University of Texas at Austin um, around the time COVID hit to spend a couple you know, mm. week at the at the Stark Library tracking a couple things back. Um, but they they had a student who worked with me a little bit on this, and what we found was that uh, with the the cluster set. Perry Rader talked about it in Iron Man magazine in the 1950s based on some work from the 1920s. And it was wow. really in the bodybuilding spectrum and it was, was called the rest pause method, basically. Yeah. Um, you know, you do a few reps, rest or pause, and then you do a few more reps. And so we, we became interested in it from a weightlifting perspective in, in the nineties. And, and we did our first study in the early two thousands. Um, it was a really interesting project. Um, and we used velocity, tools for our measurements. We actually used the vector scope out of Israel, which was probably the best velocity measurement device ever made. Um, it was really accurate. It was really good for weightlifting. It, I mean, it was, I mean, you actually got a bar trajectory instantaneously that was accurate. Um, but it was 15,000 US dollars to have. <laughs> it was unbelievable. But we used it quite, quite a lot. So yeah, cluster sets are really interesting. There's a lot of work that still needs to be done in them. Um, uh, Yoshi is, um, my doctoral student's going to be doing a series of projects with cluster sets for his PhD. Um, he did a series for his master's degree under me and he's really quite fascinated with it. So, um, yeah, I mean, we could do talk it, a lot about cluster sets. Yeah. Do, do maybe dive. Let's try to keep this practical. Do you have any favorite set rep structures maybe to develop the strength side versus maybe the velocity or power side? That's a good question. Um, so I'll start on the conditioning side. So we use okay. them a lot for conditioning um, in, in the in the strength endurance block. Um, so one of the ones I've been using a lot lately is a little bit different cluster structure. So typically a cluster set, you'd either keep the reps the same uh, throughout the, the series. So let's say I'm doing a set of 10. I could do a rep, rest 20 seconds, and then accumulate 10 reps. And, and basically <clears throat> that short rest in between repetitions um, allows you to have partial recovery of phosphocreatine so that you can maintain the quality of the repetitions across um, the series. Now, where most of the research I think is flawed uh, significantly is they equalize the training load between the tra uh, traditional and the cluster set. Yeah. One of the main benefits of the cluster set is you can use a higher load. Um, yeah. And then you can accumulate more work, which means you can accumulate more adaptation. So, for example, a traditional cluster set would be single reps. You could modify that. You know, you could do five pairs um, for a total of 10 reps in a strength endurance phase. Or you could adjust the reps and not do 10. You could do, you know, 12 reps and do four sets of three or three sets of four, or depending on the physiological outcome that you want. Obviously, the more reps you do in the cluster, um, the more fatigue you're going to create. So that can, you know, if that's what your aim is, that's what you're going to do. Um, what we've been playing with more recently is ascending clusters where the load changes from rep to rep. Mm -hmm. And so let's say I'm going to do a set of five. I may have 70% on rep one, 73 on rep two, 76 on rep three, 78 on rep four, 80 on rep five. And so the load goes up across the, the, the set. And then the next set, what we see potentially is a higher velocity at the lower load. So we get mm. PAP built yeah. into the set structure. And so 
that was Yoshi's dis, uh, thesis. We, we, we didn't load it correctly and we didn't really see the actual percentage because the loading is the, the issue when you start to do a study is you got to make it comparable to the traditional set. So, um, the average loading, it gets a little wonky and, but we found that it works pretty good. Um, now where we've been shifting now is we've been doing, uh, ascending clusters, but changing the rep scheme. So ascending load, descending repetition. So we mm -hmm. do four, three, two, one for a set of 10. Um, and that's more on that conditioning end of the spectrum. Um, mm, okay. so we do that now for strength development. Um, you know, I, I tend to go more with the individual repetitions, um, maybe up to two reps in a, in a cluster, um, personally. Um, and, and I try to, I load them a lot higher than most people. Yeah. Um, I would train it off the, the number of reps in the cluster, not the number of reps in the set, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So if I'm doing a set of five, instead of going up, you know, moderately heavy off of a set of five, let's say that's 85 to 90%. Um, I would go off of the number of reps that I have in the cluster. So if it's singles, then I'm going to go 85% off of a single on each repetition. Mm. So the loading is relatively the same, but it's at, but I'm getting more work in. Um, now, depending on how you want to do it, the, the more strength or power focus, the longer the rest between the cluster needs to be. Um, obviously, I don't usually go above 30 to 40 seconds because mm. at that point it becomes short rest interval training and it's not really a cluster set. Um, and so that's kind of how we would do it. Um, so we use ascending, we use undulating where we almost a pyramidal fashion where we go up yeah. and down and the back end is potentiated. Um, and another one that Yoshi's talked about, but we haven't done is descending. So warm up to a high set and then the cluster set is reducing mm. loads. Okay. Um, and, and we've talked about that. So we get that big stimulus on the first rep and then more speed as we go across. But we just haven't done the work on that yet. So but the, for, for us, the, that's how we use it. Would yeah. the theory on that last one be almost like to potentiate the speed side of that cluster? Yep. Yeah, yep. okay. Much it based on, it, The whole theory is based on a paper that we did with Professor Stone uh, at the USOC with the weightlifters up there. Um, where we did downsets, and we found that we got a PAP effect in the downsets. It's where we started to work mm -hmm. on strength, power, perpetuating complexes. So the idea there is, could we create PAP or or, or speed based training within in the actual set structure and get loading as well uh, for more efficiency? So that may work. We're not sure, um, mm -hmm. but we we've got to try it in the lab. We often try it in training first. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Then are there any protocols that you'd like for speed and power development? I'm assuming maybe we're looking at doing various jumps with the clusters or something like that. Yeah. Um, for me, the, this is an interesting one because we've done a fair bit of work with the cluster set and the squat. And I actually really don't like doing cluster sets with the squat um, because the, the, the problem that you have is that you have to rack it, unrack it, and that creates mm. fatigue. Unless you have a monolith, you know, like a rogue monolith yeah. or something like that where you just stand up and then squat. Um, cause then you got to account for the amount of fatigue that you're creating going back and forth in the squat rep. So you've got to lengthen the rest, the rest interval a little bit. Um, for me from a, I think it's more about the combination of the exercise you choose to do with it. And then the rep and set scheme that you put into the cluster set. Mm -hmm. So, um, if I want to build power, uh, I will use it with my power clean or my pulling derivatives or, or, or 
Um, I guess I could use it with a jump squat or something like that if I chose to. Um, and, and then how does that load, you know, what is the load that I'm going to use? Yeah. And, and how am I going to make that stimulus uh, relate to what I'm trying to accomplish? So for me, um, with that cluster set, first thing I'm going to do is is choose to exercise. I tend to default to ground-based type activities. So snatching, cleaning, power cleaning, power snatching from the floor um, or blocks and my pulling derivatives. Um, now, what I would then do is then figure out, okay, what block of training am I in? Am, am I in a, a strength block, a power block, or speed, strength, strength, speed? And what's my repetition scheme that I'm, I'm actually going to implement? And so let's say I'm on strength block, I'm going to do fives. Then, okay, I'm going to either do singles or three, cluster set two. Mm-hmm. Put a split there. And then it's then it becomes the loading. You now, what is my loading? Now, I can use ascending clusters to develop high-end strength under fatigue. I could use descending clusters for a PAP. I could use an undulating for a PAP, so that would be more in that speed strength side or strength speed. Um, if I'm trying to build just brute force, then I might keep it the same at some target load. Um, now, the other thing that I could do then is if I'm going to go into a purely speed strength, I might only do triples. I may keep the load light and work really high on speed, you know, mm. and, and and that could be in a jump squat or something like that. So it's about blending the two uh, programming structures. Gotcha. Uh, and you've mentioned a lot of here on, on PAP, PAP, or post-activation potentiation, obviously, depending on yeah. the different camps. So you have post-activation potentiation enhancement now. Obviously, there's always – I think someone published a paper yeah. literally just on the terminology <laughs> recently as well. But regardless of the terminology, post-activation potentiation, do you want to maybe dive into, okay, what it is and different ways to go about it within a training program that you know anyone can literally listen to this and kind of start to implement within their training? So post-activation potentiation enhancement, I think that's probably the best term. Um, I I do agree with some of the people that have changed that term. Um, It's basically we're trying to precondition the muscle so that it is better able to express higher speeds or higher power outputs. So typically that's done with a high force activity followed by some sort of ballistic or plyometric activity. And the time frame between those two activities is really largely dictated by the individual's ability to recover or their strength seems to be a major indicator. Stronger people tend to be able to dissipate fatigue faster, it, it, it appears. So typically, um, if you're stronger, you can display your highest PAP enhancement or post-activation performance enhancement somewhere between three and six minutes. Now, weaker people, it could be as high as eight to 12 minutes between the two activities. The problem that I have with that is that as a strength coach, I don't want my athletes sitting around for eight minutes because A, um, I've worked a little bit in in professional rugby as a consultant and I've seen what they do when they have nothing to do (laughs) in the weight room. It becomes quite chaotic. Um, I've worked in American gridiron and it's not much different. Um, when the inmates have a little bit too much time, craziness <laughs> occurs. Um, the reality then becomes, from a programming perspective, you know, how do we optimize that? Well, first, for me, like one of the classic ways I always do PAPE is I do a heavy loaded quarter squat or some sort of squatting motion, 
couple it with some plyometric motion like box jumps, hurdle hops, things like that. Or, you know, that's an example. Um, there are benefits, even if it's a shorter window between the two exercises. So your standard two minute rest interval should be fine. Um, you'll still get benefit from it. It's just not the most benefit from it. Mm. Um, and I think that's something you have to consider. Now, my wife used to do stuff with, um, with netball where she would do um, a heavy quarter squat and then a box jump. And that was one that she used a lot. Or she used a box, uh, a drop jump mm-hmm. into a vertical jump and a change of direction. So she could get that to match what they do in netball. So almost like a transition. And I think that works quite well as well. And the idea then becomes, could we optimize that? Now, my former doctoral student, Dr. Laurent Seitz, has a, has a theory from rugby that I think is really quite interesting. Um, he suggested that you would do a heavy quarter squat, go to a bench press, go to a jump squat, go to a bench throw. So almost mm. like the French contrast. Yeah. Um, and to create your PAPE that way. And I think there's some benefit to that. And I think if you structured that correctly, you could optimize the time between activities. So you would lengthen the duration using a non-fatiguing exercise in mm. another part of the body. And I think that would work quite well. I mean, there's very limited research on, on Cometti's French contrast theory, which is basically sequencing yeah. exercises. Um, there's a Russian method, there's a Bulgarian method, if you read the various <laughs> texts. Um, but fundamentally, it's it's high load to more explosive exercises and, and creating a sequence. And I think there's some, some really good benefit there. Um, I think you can overdo it. Like, you don't just do everything as a circuit like that or a, <laughs> a, as a complex. I think there's a time and place. Um, I know I like to use um, PAPE complexes or, or Professor Stone will call them strength power potentiating complexes. I like to use them in season because I can get a, a strength yeah. dose and a power dose and I can modulate. Is it a strength speed act, uh, training work day or week or a speed strength, depending on how I create those. Now, Jimmy Radcliffe, uh, the, the famous mm. strength coach from the University yep. of Oregon, who in, who in my opinion is, is probably the world's best strength coach. I, I I find him to be one of the most inspiring strength coaches I've ever met. And yeah, I met him in um, in Houston at the gang conference. It must have been five yeah. years ago now. Yeah, good. Dude. He's unbelievable. He is one of the most knowledgeable, <laughs> but one of the most humble um, uh, strength coaches I've ever met. Yeah, for when sure. I was president of NFCA, he I gave him an I, I awarded him an award every year that he turned down every year. He won't take a <laughs> lifetime achievement. Um, it was my my dream to give him an award because I think he definitely deserves it more than anybody I've ever met. But regardless, uh, Jimmy did a wonderful study back in the day uh, where he coupled power snatches with plyometrics and found great benefit there as well. So you could do Olympic lifts um, and couple Mm. them with, um, uh, you know, a high power activity. And and so high power, high power. Um, And, and you could also look at it from an exercise ordering perspective. Lauren Chu actually talked about this as well. Um, he did a study where he did pulling and vertical jump or mm-hmm. pulling, uh, snatching, pulling, jumping, things like that. So, again, yeah. p- post-activation potentiation enhancement is really about sequencing exercises to stimulate something. Yeah. Or basically high load, high power, or some sequence. And so I think you can get quite creative with it. I think there's a lot of work that still needs to be done there. I mean, we just got a paper out, um, uh, Dr. Nick Poulos, who's one of my doctoral students, 
just published a paper in JSCR on, we did some of these sequencing ideas uh, with AFL players, but the problem was Australian rules football players are just too weak to get the maximal benefit from it. Mm. Um, they're more on the endurance spectrum. And they yeah. we just didn't see what we had hoped we would see. Um, I, I would think in rugby players or, or gridiron players, we would probably see a greater benefit because they're just stronger individuals. Mm. Yeah. And then what about, and like the fighter population, I guess you would probably class more on the AFL side there regarding strength, depending on, depending on the sport, like grapplers may be a little stronger, mm. but what, what can weaker individuals do to take advantage of this? Can they take advantage of this? I, I know you mentioned longer rest periods, but that doesn't really help them take advantage of it. Is this something that they kind of have to work up to? Yeah, I think, well, well first off, I, I mean, I am 100% in agreement with uh, Professor Dietmar Schmidt-Bleicher on the fact that strength is the mother of all characteristics. Um, strength is the foundation for everything. And, and, and obviously we are on a sliding scale of strength, uh, and depending on our athletic backgrounds and, you know, what's strong from an MMA player is very different than what's strong for a good arm player. Um, so I think you have to kind of think of it in that construct. I think there's place for, remember, you have to go back to the base paradigm. When we talk about post-activation potentiation enhancement, there is timeframes for optimal expression of, 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 of power or velocity in the, um, in the test exercise or the second exercise. So is there benefit? Yeah, there's still going to be benefit. It's just how much fatigue do they, you know, are they under? So you may have to play with the loadings a little bit to make sure they can recover. And I think there's benefit there. I also think there's benefit for time efficiency. Now, on the, on the flip side of that, if we create things like, for example, five, four, three, two, one cluster sets, to try to get a PAP, it's got a double effect because what is a fighter going to have as part of their, their conundrum is they have to do express forces under fatigue. Mm -hmm. So in that model, you create, you're pre fatiguing and then you're trying to express high forces when you're a little bit tired. So that actually may have some really good transference. Um, I don't know of any studies that have looked at that directly, but um, from a conceptual perspective, I think that's mm -hmm. where we could look at it as well is creating cluster sets or these complexes where they have some fatigue to create force. So I think there's definitely benefit, but how you modulate it is depending on what your outcome measures is, is targeted. Gotcha, man. This has been an awesome chat. I mean, we could have gone another one, two hours just on these topics as well, but for, but we're going to end it here. Actually, got to, we're going to pick up our puppy from puppy school in, uh, in a little bit as oh. well. So, <laughs> yeah. There you go. But, uh, but if anyone wants to find you and follow you and see what you're up to, where can they do that? Uh, well, we're on Instagram at Doc Hoff. Uh, we are on Twitter. Not as much on Twitter anymore because it's, it's a little bit odd now with all the <laughs> weird advertisements that pop up. Um, but definitely on Instagram, um, we put up stuff uh, occasionally. We're we're probably going to be starting a new thing in the next year, um, mTOR Strength Sciences, um, nice. which is kind of a, a side project for us. We're, we're, we're starting to build out that. Um, my wife and I, our weightlifting team is mTOR Barbell Club, our weightlifting team, which is kind of a play on sports science, which is quite popular. <laughs> um, so we... Um, we're hoping to have that running in the next year. Um, once I get on a little bit of time away from, from ECU and, and do some of my own things. So, uh, but definitely on Instagram. 
Awesome. I'll link that up in the description anyway, but thanks for coming on, Greg. Really appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. Thanks, James.